It was Michael Eisner. I'm such an idiot. Michael Eisner, not Bob Eisner. It's Bob Iger and Michael Eisner. God. Anyways, Michael Eisner was like, hey, um, you know what you should do? You should do something different from this one. And they're like, what's that, boss? You should have a screenwriter. Oh, my God. Okay, obviously this sounds kind of dumb nowadays, but would you believe that wasn't done prior to now? This was the first one. The first Disney film, anyways, that actually had an honest-to-goodness screenwriter and script and screenplay for the film. You're probably thinking, what the hell did they have before this? Storyboards. Everything was done in storyboards prior to this. And, in my opinion, it kind of shows, because on the one hand, well, as much as I do like this film, and I do, the flow of it isn't as good as both earlier and later films because this was the first time they were trying it, so it was still kind of new. But on the other hand, there's a lot more to the script and the dialogue than there usually is, and it works quite well. This is also designed far more to be a musical. In fact, apparently, this was a deliberate attempt to try and engender some kind of eventual theatrical release of this, which, hey, actually happened, so there you go. Uh, this is written by Linda... Oh, no. The terrible handwriting problem comes back. Oh, jeez. I'm not going to try that. I'm not even going to try it. Linda. Her name's Linda. I'm looking it up. Give me just a second. Linda Wolverton. Thank you. Linda Wolverton is the one who wrote the script. Now, if that doesn't sound familiar, uh, let's see. She She's written a couple of other movies you might have heard of. Uh, Mulan, you know, little-known film. Uh, Lion King. Aladdin. She's all, She also did the recent Maleficent. She's also doing Maleficent, too. For the record, I actually liked Maleficent, so I'm kind of curious what's going to go on with two. But anyways, I'm getting off topic. The relevant point is that she is the one who wrote this, which I find fascinating given the core problem with the, the script, but I'm getting off topic again. Uh, there were a couple other things that went into this. Now, one of the big ones... Yeah, I actually got it. <laughs> one of the big things is Mr. Ashman. Now, uh, I want to make sure I get his first name absolutely right, because I don't want to screw this up. But Mr. Ashman is, um... Come on. Okay, it is Howard, that's right. <sighs> I don't know, I, I don't know what is up with my, my handwriting sometimes. It looks like I wrote down Hound. Howard Ashman... He died before the film came out. He was a brilliant and talented songwriter. Uh, he did several songs and, in fact, was working on Aladdin at this point in time when they basically begged him to work on this film. He had also done work with uh, Little Mermaid. He wasn't doing great health-wise. Now, I, I want to kind of mention this. So, Eisner insisted they bring in a scriptwriter. Did I mention this is the third time they attempted to make a Beauty and the Beast film? And each time previously they failed. Also, the first script they turned in was so bad it was rejected entirely, which kind of hurt the production of the film. It's also worth noting that every single original actor they wanted to get, they didn't. The same is also true for the directors and the producers. So, in total contrast to Little Mermaid, this was... So, Little Mermaid was a Jurassic Park. It had all the pieces in place. Beauty and the Beast got lucky. It had none of the pieces in place. It was experimental in terms of style and design. Remember, completely new thing. They're using the CAPS system going forward, the, the Pixar thing. 
Um, and they even were trying, actually trying fully CGI scenes now at this point with the, the scene at the ball. And they also were releasing this in a different method via previewing, and they weren't really sure exactly what they wanted to do with regards to um, the original script, as I mentioned. And the guy they got, they wanted to bring in to help the production. So, I, so just I'm telling you all this to get you in mind of the idea that this is a production that was just, it, and it just wasn't working, and it was troubled, and everyone was having issues. And they brought in Mr. Ashman. Now, when I say they brought in, he was actually working on Aladdin. He wanted Aladdin to be his last project because he knew at this point in time that he was dying and he didn't have much time left. Now, he did still do several songs for Aladdin. I'll bring those up when we get to Aladdin. But they, they really did not only beg him, but I don't know if you understand how significant this is. They moved production on the film to a studio that was much closer to where he lived to accommodate him. Now, that's a nice gesture, and it shows how much they wanted him on the staff, but it also kind of shows how bad things were going, that they were this desperate to make this work. With all of these issues and all of these problems, well, I want to mention something. Because they also, uh, they did a different thing with the previewing. I mentioned that earlier. Usually, Disney animated films have a screening. I actually don't think I mentioned this with, with regards to Little Mermaid. Because what happened with Little Mermaid is they did a test screening, and during the test screening, the kids weren't really super into it. And they were going to actually cut several scenes and one entire song because of that. The staff and the directors were like, dude, no, don't do this to us. Listen, listen, do a second screening, do a second screening with adults. Fine. And the adults loved it, so, you know... He admitted that he made the mistake there, and they went ahead and put the film together as is. This time, for the first time in Disney history, they had their first screening with an entire audience with just adults. I mentioned how Little Mermaid was kind of a push in a new direction for Disney films that were not just for the children, but for the parents taking them. This is the first time they made a Disney film more or less specifically aimed at adults. And it was a hell of an experiment, and somehow it worked out. After that initial screening, they loved it. it, 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 it they literally got a standing ovation for it. <laughs> so, this would be the Star Wars <laughs> of the initial renaissance. Um, couple quick things. The narration at the beginning is awesome, in my opinion. It's one of the very few times narration works for me, mostly because... The nature of the storybook storytelling style, the amazing voice acting, and of course, uh, the music that accompanies it perfectly, really helps to make the whole thing work. It really does feel kind of storybook in a good way. The other reason I think it works is because the gentleman who is playing the, the voice actor plays Timison over in Star Trek The Next Generation, the episode Half-A-Life. Go ahead, look it up. I'll wait. But as soon as I sat here hearing him, I was like, wait. Because I've been covering TNG stuff recently, and I was like, that sounds really familiar. So I looked it up, and I looked him up, and I was like, oh my god, that is him! He also plays someone in Pocahontas, but we'll get there when we get there. Quick aside, while I'm on the subject, uh, Patrick Stewart was originally approached to be Cogsworth. He couldn't because TNG. Second time they failed to get Patrick Stewart. That's okay, because the, Patrick Stewart was actually their second option after John Cleese who they also didn't get. 
I'm telling you, troubled production. Anyways, so the intro once again follows the pattern I mentioned earlier. We establish the premise, we establish the main character, the NPCs, the villain. Bam, 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 bam. The one thing this film does differently, though, and this is probably part of the fact that it is deliberately a musical, is the fact that it establishes the premise in the intro, in, in the storybook intro, and then it establishes the other three things all in one song. But this goes to explain, in my opinion, one of the reasons Beauty and the Beast succeeded as well as it did. In some older musicals and more modern musicals, and even other fictional works that aren't musicals, if you're going to establish certain different characters, usually they'll have completely segregate scenes. Or maybe a scene that blends into a scene that blends into a scene. Trying to pack all of this exposition into one scene that is one song is, in hindsight, brilliant. It gets across everything we need to know about the base elements, and it gives us our launching point for everything in the entire film. We see how vapid and easily manipulatable the random personnel are, the, the random NPCs in the background. We see how <sighs> stupid Gaston is. How do you read this? There's no pictures. We, it's entirely possible that he literally doesn't know how to read, that he's illiterate, and given the time... Mm. We establish how she is different from the rest of the group, and of course, not just in the more obvious ways, but because of the fact that she is someone who... <sighs> I'm trying to think how to phrase this as simply as possible without sounding like a complete cliché. See, there's the I-don't-fit-in trope, which is what she is, but... It's also relevant to note that she makes fun of them in the same way that they make fun of her in the song. And I point that out because both are looking down at the other's lifestyle. That's a very minor point, but it helps to get across the idea that Belle isn't exactly perfect either. She's not horrible. She's nowhere near as bad as anyone else in this film. But you can get across the idea that she's not helping things. I think that's the way I want to put that. However, there's one other thing that the film does which is absolutely brilliant. And I'll admit, I never noticed it until this time around. She's wearing blue. How many of you know what I'm talking about before I explain? No one else in the entire opening song is wearing blue. No one. The film actually has a bit of a color motif going, actually. In general, it tends to utilize red as evil and blue as good. So we can tell they play Alliance. <clears throat> I'll talk more about that in a minute. I also, so we move forward a little bit, and we learn a little bit about Maurice and how he's a bumbling, inept idiot. Oh, I'm sure he means well, and you'll notice that he unhesitatingly begs for help and does whatever it takes to try and take care of his daughter. He is a well-meaning idiot, and I point that out because he serves as an interesting counterpart to Le Fou, um, who is not well-meaning and an idiot. <laughs> I'll talk more about LeFou in a moment, but you can see the contrast there. I always got the impression that Maurice pushed his daughter. I don't mean as in in a bad way, I mean in a good way, to try and encourage her to think and challenge him and to come up with her own ideas and concepts. To encourage her, in short, rather than to hamper her. Moving on. So, I have a note here, by the way. I do want to mention something really quick. Of course, obviously, Belle has no mother. Why would you have two parents as a Disney character? Come on. Uh, but no, um, I also want to point out that in addition to Gaston's illiteracy, he also mentions that Belle is the prettiest girl in town. Ergo, 
She's the best. Duh, that's how that works. <laughs> He's kind of a cartoony villain. I don't mean like cartoonishly evil, which is just, which is a whole separate thing. I mean like, like the bad guy you'd see, you know, there's, he's just, he's just a goofball. He's just kind of misogynistically whatever, and he's not really to be taken seriously. And I want you to remember that for later. So, uh, Boris goes ahead and takes his thing to the fair, gets incredibly lost, ends up at this castle, which is apparently right nearby, by the way. I'm going to go and admit something. There's actually a lot of plot holes in this film. Like, like a lot of plot holes. It's almost like this was the first time they tried to do a script for an animated feature like this. Anyways, ignoring that for a moment, and I'm going to try to only point out the really big plot holes, I point out the fact that this castle is apparently right frickin' here. Now, this is important. This is it in France, obviously. It is most likely that this castle was, in fact, the castle of this province that the town she lives in was one of the towns that was owned by the prince when he was actually a human. That all makes perfect sense. It is actually implied, although never stated outright, that part of the curse is that the people kind of forget that, that they don't really know that they're under the, the leadership of Prince What's-His-Face, and that they don't actually acknowledge its existence. In short, this would help to explain one of the reasons why people haven't bumbled into this castle so many times prior, given that it's basically right frickin' there. I mean, later on in the film, they literally reach it during a musical number. And at several points, even if we ignore the, the silliness of that, it takes less than a day to get from town to castle. And back. So... Anyways... So Maurice bumbles in, and the servants are like, Oh my gosh, we've got to take care of him immediately. Thank goodness we can take care of someone. I'm going to return to that point later. It bothered me a little bit, though, and I'm, I'm curious of your thoughts on that. Again, I'll return to that a little bit later. I do have to wonder something. How do they get their resources? They have soap and, and dustbins, and, and they keep things clean, and they have food and tea and sugar, and where the hell is this all coming from? They've been here for a decade, according to the narrative, since the prince was 11. It's worth noting that in future versions of this, they've actually retconned that out, just to say that, you know, he wasn't a child when this happened. But regardless, the point remains. <clears throat> yeah, anyways. So, this is when we get to Gaston again. Gaston then takes a step further towards being worse. Notice this scene is immediately after the scene where the beast imprisons Maurice for the horrible crime of being there. Now, yes, trespassing is a thing, but obviously Maurice is an innocent, bumbling fool who was being taken care of by his own servants. He is no threat or harm and has done no knowing or willful crime. He was invited to sit down and invited to eat and drink and blah, blah, blah. That's not a crime. Sorry. So, in the actual legal sense, you could argue very strongly he was not trespassing. Regardless of this innocence, the beast immediately locks him up in the dungeon and just charges off. Okay. So, that's horrible. We then go immediately from that scene to Gaston, who is, at this point, being portrayed in a better light than the beast. Thankfully, that is immediately fixed by the fact that Gaston... Well, he does something, again, this is still kind of in the direction of cartoony, and it's played off for laughs. But what he does is he arranges the wedding ceremony and then goes and asks Belle to marry him. Let me say that again in case I misspoke. He automatically presumed 
that she was going to accept his hand in marriage. By the way, as an aside, I've always thought that Gaston is just sleeping around constantly on addition to that. So there's no doubt that he wouldn't be loyal to her. Just, just adding to the pile here. Anyways, so before even proposing, he has already set everything up because it's so logical to him that she will go for him. After all, she's his property. Now, again, the way it's portrayed is light and silly and cartoony. So at this point in time, Gaston is still in a more favorable light in the film's eyes than the Beast. But you can see how we're starting to slip a little here. So, <clears throat> this is after... Uh, so, so Belle goes looking for Maurice, finds the castle, of course. And you'll notice the servants are a lot more cautious with her than they were with Maurice. That makes sense. They just saw how badly things went. They do kind of get get her up to Maurice, who is like, Oh, God, Father! And this is when the Beast shows up, because, of course. Now, the Beast is still being shown in an extremely negative light, and rightly so. You'll notice he is also hiding in the shadows because he, he doesn't want to be seen, which, yeah, that makes sense. There's a nice little bit where Belle says, I'll stay in his stead. And the Beast hesitates. It's the first time we've seen anything other than the typical scowl on his face. There's basically just emotion there. It's so raw that I hesitate to qualify it as anything. But what he's feeling is feeling. Something other than self-loathing and rage. And it stops him for a second. And he's like, wait, wait you... You would, and then she demands that he comes into the light. She is, of course, horrified to look at him. I'm not sure why. He's not that beastly. I've seen people in real life who look worse than that. Anyways. <clears throat> but, uh... This... The thought of having company, any company, kind of gets him. So he releases Maurice and keeps her treating her like she's property. Now... This is then when he is prompted by his staff, hey, dude, you need to put her, you can't just put her in the jail. Oh, right, right. Um, would you come, did you like to see a room? I thought, you want to stay here? You'll notice he's still being abrasive, and, and he's raising his voice almost every time he speaks. I don't want to come across as if I am apologizing for him, because he's kind of a monster in addition to being a beast, but I do think this, the circumstances do need to be taken into account. This is someone who has had no one to really interact with other than his servants for a decade. That will do a number on you. Like, badly. He has been in a serious echo chamber. But I want you to keep that in mind for a minute, because I'm going to come back to that point. Anyways, so he treats her like she's property, and you're going to go here, and then going to dinner. You, you have to come to dinner. This, this is not an invitation. <laughs> So he's, he's still not good. But you can see how they are beginning to lighten his character slightly as Gaston is getting worse. Speaking of which, this leads to no one, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to be copyrighted. song about Gaston. I actually know the lyrics to several songs in this play. I have, in fact, sung this play before uh, in school, along with Little Mermaid. Go ahead, make fun, it's all right. I used to have a higher-pitched voice, believe it or not. Most people did. Anyways, <clears throat> then we have the Gaston song. And this this is actually an interesting point. Because LeFou is most of the problem here. 
Now, the, the, the point the movie is making is that Gaston is a terrible human being. And that's entirely possibly true. But he never is given a chance to be anything elsewise. And what I mean by that is no one ever challenges him. He has been turned down by a woman, and rather than anyone saying, you idiot, or I can't believe you did that, or maybe you should try to actually woo her, or anything that might encourage him to grow in a tiny microscopic way, they just say, nah, you're awesome. He, too, is in an echo chamber. And based on how we see it, he has probably been in an echo chamber his whole life. How exactly are you going to get better if everyone always tells you you're amazing, even when you fail? So, you can kind of see the problem here. This then leads to Belle, who constantly challenges the beast, and is constantly pushing back against him, to the point where he, well, doesn't actually know how to deal with it, because he's never dealt with it before. But he does process it, he does deal with it, and it is part of, I would argue, probably the biggest reason why he starts to improve as a person. Because someone challenges him. Someone encourages him. Someone pushes him. Like Maurice does, or at least I think Maurice did, to Belle. Which is why Belle is now doing it to him, and frankly to everyone. <laughs> so, Beast does start to change a little bit. I mentioned the 11-year-old thing. Unfortunately... <laughs> Like I said, that's been retconned since then. But if we are to take that into heart, I wonder what kind of child he was at 11. Who raised him to be so horrible? Notice he also has no parents. And you ever look up real-life circumstances of kings and queens who are crowned when they're of one-digit age range? Yeah, that, that leads to some messed-up circumstances. Or some really great leaders. Or some really horrible leaders. Take your pick. Anyways. This also leads to him completely losing his temper more than once. And that's part of the problem, is that he has no self-control here at all. The fact he actually just, he tries to reach out to her, and then he tries to reach out to her. I'm saying this wrong. What he does is he does what he thinks is trying to reach out to her. But what he's actually doing is not understanding the circumstance and situation at all. He is being extremely presumptive. He wants her to come down to eat with him. That is what he wants. So we, I'm asking nicely, why don't you please do what I want, is what he's effectively doing. Now you can see how this is still better than Gaston, but only just. And then, of course, he loses his temper and says she's not going to eat at all. This leads to something interesting. She sneaks out and goes to the, the food area and gets food. And Be Our Guest plays, along with the song from FF14, props if you get it. But um, the point here is that she is hungry, and Miss Potts says, Duh, I'm going to feed her. And everyone just kind of starts to go along with that. But I point that out because the implication is given that all of them have been lockstep in line with the Master's wishes constantly. This is the first real time they see them actively disobeying a direct order they're starting to challenge him, too, even if it's not to his face, not like she does. So, there's a bit, I mentioned this earlier, there's a bit where they're all like, you know, be our guest, be our guest. This bothered me a little bit, and again, this, this is why I'd like to know your thoughts. Why do you think they are so damned eager to please here? Now, you could say, well, they say in the song, it's because they are servants, and that's what they're meant to do, to which I say... 
hang on, say that sentence back to me real quick. <laughs> they're servants and that's what they're meant to do. Now, don't mistake me, certain people can certainly love their jobs, but what? That's, that's the take we're taking from this? I actually have a slightly different take, if you'll forgive me for sharing. I think these people have been alone and cloistered in and have had nothing to do for a decade. They're eager to do anything at this point, even if it means serving someone else, just because it means they can do something. And they're serving her because that's what they know how to do. <laughs> My take. It doesn't explain the resources problem. They, they show her a lot of really good-looking food. I actually got hungry watching it, because of course I did. But anyways... <clears throat> so, of course... The only way, place she wants to go to is the Forbidden Place. Now, that actually makes sense. Obviously, she's an explorative, adventurous person who likes to push boundaries, but more to the point, it's the only place that's caught her attention. Nothing they have said has highlighted anywhere except for the Forbidden Wing. So that's the thing that has her attention. You'll notice also when she goes there, she is still kind of hesitant and cautious because she's being, as weird as it may sound, respectful about it. She also, well, the Beast's Room is interesting because it is trashed. Just mangled. If you ever need to understand the mindset of the Beast, all you have to do is look at that room. That room shows everything about what he has been like for the last ten years. And remember, no one to challenge him, no external stimuli, as I like to put it. He has degenerated as a person. And I don't just mean because he doesn't know how to eat with a spoon. So, of course, she tries to touch the rose. I'm actually kind of curious what would have happened if she had. He flips out, loses his temper again, and casts her out. And it's not until afterwards that he's like, Ah, oh, god dang it, I lost my temper again. Now, this is a nice point. This is the first real sign of the kind of person the Beast actually is. He can't let her die. Now, now I've actually heard people interpret this differently. And you're free to, of course, and I'd, I'd always like to hear your interpretations. But in my opinion, this is the first time he shows any of his real self. He can't just let her go out there and die to the wolves. So he chases out to save her, arguably at the cost of his own life. Now you could say, well, he's still a horrible person. I would say, I tend to agree. But there's a difference between someone like him and someone who would be totally cool with letting her die. There is a gradient when it comes to bad. And Beast is showing that he's not that bad. And so is Belle, because without much hesitation, like you see it on her face, it's wonderful animation, by the way. She's, she's going to reach up to get onto the horse, and she just kind of stops. And then, okay, no, nah, and she goes ahead and helps the beast and gets back to the castle. Because she can't let him die either. This is also the first time that she, in a direct way, challenges him in a way that doesn't get him to lose his temper. He's he's still angry, but he's mostly angry because he knows she's right, rather than he's just lost his temper, which is just... Argh. So it's the, first, it's the closest thing to the first real interaction the two have had. This then leads to the next day, which, if you're paying attention, is day two. This is the biggest plot flaw in the film for me, personally. These two people fall in love in the course of about two and a half days, which... That sounds familiar, doesn't it? <laughs> and uh, that's ridiculous, given how this started. 
Now, yeah, I know, but this this is just a whirlwind romance tour, isn't it? My God. So I want to try and explain some of this in a way that, to me, actually makes sense, and I'm just going to skip over the romance part. No, really, I am. Because this is going to sound cliched, and from a more modern storytelling perspective, but love doesn't have to mean romantic. Oh, I have no doubt that their love could blossom into something romantic. I do. There's a lot of similar... Uh, the two gel with each other better than they probably should. There's a decent dynamic there. But, um... Yeah, not, not in two and a half days. No, what they do feel is something different. There is something that wasn't there before, as the song says. And this leads to him saying, I want to do something for her. I wonder if this is the first time the idea of a selfless gift has really occurred to him. Ever. And I point that out because it helps to showcase the kind of person he really is. See, there's a big argument that's been waging for all of human history between nurture and nature. Now, I tend to sit somewhere in the middle of that. I think both matter. But I do think that no matter what happens to nurture you, you cannot change your core nature. That is my opinion. And a lot of these films tend to follow the same concept. This is relevant here because the beast has been nurtured in all the wrong ways. He was a spoiled brat as a kid. Then he got turned into a cursed beast. And he got locked in a castle for a decade, doing nothing but listening to people say, Yes, Master. Yet, no, he has been nurtured hard in the wrong ways, all of the wrong ways. But the idea that the film presents, and indeed, this is the main theme of the work. This isn't even me making this up. The main theme is you can't judge a book by its cover. So the idea is that his nature inside of all that is still an inherently good person. That's why I mentioned him going out to save her life, because... Well, an inherently bad person wouldn't necessarily do that, especially with no promise of reward or return on investment. So the idea of him giving a purely selfless gift to her is the next step in that. He just wants to do something nice for her. You could say that's romantic. You could say that's love. That's up to you. All I see is someone who is starting to get acknowledging the bare-bones beginnings of what it means to be a decent person to someone else, which is unfortunately a new idea for him. In many ways, this film is the redemption story of the Beast. And I point that out because the love story angle of it is kind of horrible. <laughs> for reasons I've already mentioned. I'm not even going to get into Stockholm. Let's just not even cover that. So, they, they go out. They play in the snow. Romance happens. Do you notice his cape color? I wouldn't blame you if you didn't. I never noticed it either. But as soon as I noticed the blue and red thing in the audience, I decided to Google that. And that led me to the fact that it was, in fact, deliberate. Which led me to another deliberate thing. See, she's wearing blue. She consistently wears blue in most of her presentation. And again, blue motif. Blue good, red bad. Up until the snow scene, his cloak is red. When they start kind of interacting on day two, his cloak is purple. By the evening, he will start wearing blue. I can't believe I never caught that before. It's nice, though. It's a nice touch. So, <clears throat> they, they dance. The CGI happens. I remember it more badly than this, but it actually looked pretty good. They did a good job with it, especially for the time. I mean, you can tell it's CGI, but it's still good. It's well done. And you don't have to fight the damn chandelier boss this time, so that's a plus. This then leads to probably the biggest moment of his character arc. 
which is good because this film is relatively small and he, he goes through a hell of a whirlwind tour. It's like Thor 1, right? He goes through a complete character shift in like three days. Anyways. See, he asks her, are you happy here? And she says yes. And he's like, <gasps> but then she's like, ah. and he notices. This is another important step, understanding and noticing other people's emotions and feelings. And of course, caring about them. So he's like, wait, no, I've, I've got an idea. I'll bring you to the mirror. I can show you him. <gasps> he's hurt. Oh, oh, oh. Earlier he gave her the gift of the library. You know what that cost him? Nothing. Don't mistake me. It was still an important step in his character arc. The idea of giving a selfless gift solely because you want to give to someone else is a good step. This is the next step. Giving at cost. Giving in a way that is detrimental to you, either because it costs you literal money, or time, or effort, or pain, or sacrifice. That's the next step. So he knows, not just that he's going to miss her, of course, but he's going to run out of time. See, this is the important part. They all act like, oh, she's gone and it's too late. Well, the reason why is because they only have, like, one day left on the rose petals. One more day and they're done. So her leaving, for any length of time, is basically game. And the movie never says it, but I've always gotten the impression that if they reach that point, then it's over. Even if all of them continue to exist after that point, which is debatable, the idea being that no one else externally would ever be able to find the castle again. Yeah. Even if they do find the castle, of course, he is now cursed to be a beast forever. So no matter what, we're looking at bad, bad, and bad. And he still lets her go. I'm not saying he's a good person. As I said, he's pretty horrible in this film. But you can tell how he is starting to redeem himself. And starting to understand concepts that, you know, are probably more normal to us. Page two of my notes. One moment. So we hit the climax. It kind of comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? These films are a lot shorter than the ones I'm used to. Not that I'm complaining. There's a lot to talk about. A lot of density here. We're already in the climax, and the people are coming out to, you know, arrest Maurice to advance the I'm going to kidnap your father to force you to marry me plan. Wow, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's a lot more horrible in this th th sake, though, and you can kind of see why Gaston has been continuing his journey of becoming a worse person, while Beast is continuing his journey to become a better person. So, quick question. Why are they already out there with torches and pitchforks to arrest Maurice? I don't even know about the beast yet. <clears throat> Anyways. So, Gaston is like, oh, I will kill the beast. And we can see why, too. His motive is so obvious. He doesn't seem to care. He's just staring there like, yeah, okay, whatever. Up until she says, no, he's kind. He's my friend. And then she's, he's like, oh, he's your friend. He's why you won't marry me. Well, in typical founder thinking, I'll just remove that piece from the board and then you'll be all mine. This is not Gaston at his worst, but he is one step away at this point. And he riles them all up to go kill the beast, because screw him. Good song, by the way. Probably my favorite song in the film. We don't know it and we don't understand it. And it just uh, Yeah, I, I don't remember all the lyrics, but it's good stuff. Um... <clears throat> They also talk about how we must stop the creature. Frankenstein reference. Anyways. 
I'm not going to say, I don't, I don't have much to say about the battle itself. There's some really good animation. There's a nice bit, which I've actually never seen before, where there's a shadow of a guy who's got a mace, and the mace is bonking him on the head, so even the maces are animated. How many people were in this castle? God, I mean, if every fork and knife... I'm getting off topic. They managed to defeat everyone. We even see a mimic. Nom, nom, nom. That, that made me laugh. Gaston has no problem killing a defenseless person. Of course he doesn't. And Beast, well, as soon as Beast has a reason to fight back, he does so wonderfully. He is basically better than Gaston in every way. <laughs> Bigger, stronger, faster, more agile, and a better uh, terrain advantage. So he crushes Gaston, basically in one hit. Now what's interesting is Gaston then immediately begs and pleads for his life. So the Beast lets him live. This is a common theme in all of fiction, where the good guy is not allowed to kill the bad guy even when they should. Sometimes it makes sense, and sometimes it doesn't. I think it works here, because the problem is Gaston, when he looked at a defenseless, pitiful person, raised a weapon to murder him. When the beast looks down at a pathetic, defenseless person, begging for help, he lets him live. The distinction here is obvious. The beast really is better than Gaston in every way, especially in bed. Now, this leads to the beast, you know, going up and reaching out to Bell, and Gaston stabbing him, like, right in the kidneys. That's a mean stab. No wonder he starts to die from that. Yikes. Although it's okay, he basically gets resurrected or healed, depending on how you want to think of that. Something else I never caught before. Gaston and the Beast start to fall off the the, uh, the 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 chunk of the castle they're on into the ravine. That fall is certain death. And yes, I've saw the the the, the skeleton in his eyes. Yes, we've all seen that. But um, I bring that point up because Gaston flails and falls to his death. The Beast flails back and is caught by Bell. Bell literally pulls the beast back from the abyss as Gaston falls into it. Cute. Very cute. This then leads to the ending, which I actually don't have much to say about. Although, I do gotta say, God, the level of power behind this curse is ridiculous. What level was this sorceress or enchantress or whatever? Good Lord! No, I'm not even being facetious here. This is something that cursed the entire castle, the literal terrain of the castle, in addition to the weather, in addition to everyone in it, in addition to everyone in the surrounding province, in addition to the whole, it heals him and then restores him and has rules magic built in, because rules magic's always stronger, we know this, and just, God, the level of power. And she uses this to curse all these people because the prince is a dick. What did they do to deserve this? Did this province get conquered like 15 times in the last 10 years by other kingdoms? Because all of a sudden the kingdom that owned it just went away? Yeah, I know. Nobody cares about politics in Beauty and the Beast. Despite the big plot hole, which I've already complained about, make no mistake, I did enjoy this a lot. I, I was actually a little bit surprised how much I enjoyed it. Which is okay, because the next two films are Aladdin and Lion King, so I think this trend's going to continue. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. I'll see you next time.